Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. So I know that uh, there's probably a lot of questions you would love to ask, and we're going to try to take as many questions for Dallas as we can before we adjourn for our lunch break. And uh, if you have a question, Darren's here in the middle. Let's go for it. Yes, you defined um, obedience as being obedient to Christ and the Spirit. What does that look like in our everyday life? How do we work that out? Obedient to what? Well, um, if I understand the question, if I don't, come back at me, please. Uh, If I understand the question, it looks like people who do the things that Jesus represented as good without thinking a lot about it. They don't struggle with uh, anger, for example. Now, they they had to start there and learn what to do about anger. But... Uh, as they become more and more developed in their interaction with Christ, and that means in their real world, um, uh, they're not governed by anger. They're not governed by lusting, uh, by uh, saying things uh, that they don't mean. They, They let their yes be a yes and their no be a no. And we know a lot of people who are experts at letting yes mean no and no mean yes. 
And so the, the mastery of, of language so that in pure simplicity, uh, people simply say and communicate what they mean. Uh, so now then, uh, a major part of this is going to be what I like to call joyful non-cooperation with evil. <laughs> because, you know, we're all in contexts where people expect us to cooperate with evil. Now, that has to be learned uh, so that uh, we do it appropriately. But uh, uh, we just step out of that. And that's, you, that's very concretely manifested in personal relationships at work and home and wherever we may be. So if I, if I get your question, and the character says, well, we just do the sorts of things that Jesus said without necessarily even thinking about them. Now we have to, as when we start, we do the wrong things without thinking about them. That's because of the role of the body and the social context in human life. The role of the body is to allow us to act without thinking. Should I say that again? Because I find that people really haven't thought about this. You see, that's, for example, if you're driving an automobile or speaking a language, uh, you come to the point to where you don't have to think, now I should put on the brakes now. And actually you realize that a person who has to think about it, you probably don't want to be riding with them. <laughs> you want that to be something that they have learned to do. And so I think the other direction, of course, is we've learned all sorts of bad things that we can do without thinking. And this is uh, this is certainly presented to us in the scripture in the case of someone like Peter. But it's all very common of folks who just say, well, my, I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do that. And they do it. They wind up doing it. Uh, see, that Peter said, I'm not going to deny you. But he did. Well, where was that? That was in his body, in that social context. And he probably had the thing conceptualized. And after all, he did take after someone in the garden with a sword and cut off their ear. That's probably what he was thinking when he was saying, well, I'll die with you. I'll die for you. A little girl comes up. <laughs> yeah, you're one of them. And all of a sudden, just, no, I'm not. Well, where was that? It was in his jaws. And so that's, I would say simply, is you, the person who is growing in grace in this way is a person who increasingly does not need to think about it in order to do what Jesus would do. Uh, that's a sort of a criticism of the, of the uh, slogan, what would Jesus do? You know, well, Jesus probably wouldn't need to think about it. Now, if we need to think about it, then for goodness sakes, let's think about it. And that's, that's a part of the process of learning. Does that do any good? Okay. I actually had one question, and your remarks <clears throat> made me think of another one. 
But I'll go back to the question that I had originally. <laughs> okay. Within so, the context of what you spoke of this morning, would you just comment on the frequency and the incidence of divorce within the church? Of which? Divorce. Divorce. Well, um, you know, the, with reference to divorce or other things that are problematic or wrong, um, I encourage us not to start there, but to think about where divorce comes from. Um, that's what we need to deal with. Uh, the context of divorce that Jesus was dealing with was certainly very different from the one that we are working from. Uh, a, a woman who was divorced in that day had almost no possibilities that were uh, decent. Uh, I'm not saying it's right now. I'm just saying it's, we have to think about the difference uh, in various contexts. See, uh, the Presbyterian missionaries in Canada uh, a couple of centuries ago, they were dealing with the Sioux Indians who were polygamous. And they thought they shouldn't have more than one wife. And so with really brutal consequences, the chiefs who were converted got rid of their extra wives. So you have to think a lot about what goes into it. But most, it's like most wars. You can talk about just war, but most wars are just by far. And there are, I think, cases where divorce would be justified. But most of them come out of circumstances that are not good. And they have consequences that are not good. So I don't think you can deal with that just by saying, I didn't get a divorce, so I'm fine, any more than say, I didn't kill anybody, so I'm fine. You have to look into the details. But the sad truth is that when a divorce, especially in the church, happens, there is a profound failure at other levels. And if you start working in terms of, say, loving your neighbor as yourself, it might occur to you that maybe your wife or husband is your neighbor. And that would give you a different way of thinking about uh, how they're treated and how, you tre how uh, they treat you and so on. And the principle is love. And one reason why I have practically ceased to perform weddings is because now when people get, wedding, get, get married, it often doesn't amount to much, and they often wind up within a few years or even months hating one another. So, um, we have to deal with what, with what is fundamental. Now, what is fundamental, even more than loving your neighbor as yourself, is realizing that you are blessed living in the kingdom of God. And that's where I think we have to start. Uh, where do you stand, uh, or how do you talk about how do you talk about uh, the once saved, always saved? You've mentioned a couple of things. Can Christians be lost? Yeah. You know, what does it mean to be saved? And then in uh, right. Divine Conspiracy, there was some allusion to uh, uh, being a Christian and not being a disciple. Right. Well, uh, in reference to that issue, I think the real problem is identifying once saved. Right. 
So you have elaborate theologies now that are tied to forgiveness of sins. And the idea is that if you will accept uh, the suffering of Christ on the cross as your punishment, uh, then uh, you are forgiven, past, present, and future. And that line of thinking says you can't get rid of it. I actually don't believe in the perseverance of the saints. I believe in the perseverance of the Savior. And anyone who has connected with God through Christ by trust of the kind that leads naturally to discipleship, I think they will uh, uh, be saved in the sense of making it into heaven. Now, that's not the end of the story uh, because you have to be concerned about what happens after that. And t typically, people sort of think of heaven as the, you know, the big Marriott in the sky or something of that sort. So we need to rethink all of that. And uh, we need to think about questions like, if you get to heaven, would you like it? So uh, I hope that's a decent response. Um, I had two questions. One is on the Beatitudes. Um, do you think they can be looked at as conditions or states um, in, that we come into in bringing us to the kingdom of God and then as we grow in the kingdom of God? So, for example, when it says, blessed are you who are poor, being poor is the condition that you come into to come to the kingdom of God. If you, if you see yourself as rich, you probably won't come in the first place. So, and then... And well, I would just ask you, would you like to hold to that, that being poor guarantees you the kingdom of God? Being rich guarantees you you won't? No. No, I wouldn't either. No, that I'm saying that that's a condition that you come to in order to recognize your need for Jesus in the first place. Do you think that all people who are poor come to that? I don't necessarily mean materialistically poor, but poor spiritually. Well, uh, those are two different things, of course, and you have two Beatitudes and two Gospels to cover both of them. Um, so, I guess my question is, uh, if you take that approach, you seem to be uh, devoted to the idea that being poor will tend to bring you blessedness. Or, I mean, in Luke, the woebees just says, woe be to you who are rich. And uh, I know scholars who say that if you're rich, you're going to go to hell because of that teaching and some other things that they put in the mix. Well, I'm not referring to material, material wealth. I'm referring to spiritual condition. So if you recognize, even if you have money or whatever, that I'm poor in spirit, oh. then, then that's a good thing because that's the thing that's going to compel me to come to Christ. So it's not being poor in spirit, it's recognizing it. Yes. Now then, see, here's something that 
and I hate to wrangle with you about it, and I hope you'll not approach it in that or think of it in that way because I don't mean that. What you, need, what you want is a consistent way of approaching the Beatitudes. Yes. And uh, if you think that that Beatitude from Matthew is designed to teach humility, as many people do, uh, you need to see if you can get that out of the language. Uh, it's not talking about thinking you're poor, even though some translations, it's talking about being poor in spiritual things. You want to look at people who are poor in spiritual things, look at the 12 apostles of Jesus. Mm -hmm. They were poor in spiritual things. They got better. They were good people. God worked with them. But the truth is, they were poor in spiritual things. They had nothing going for them. And in the book of Acts, you'll remember the Sanhedrin says, uh, they recognized that they were unlearned and ignorant men. They didn't have anything spiritual going for them. Jesus was treated in that way because he didn't have a rabbi to sponsor him and he hadn't been to seminary. And so people were asking constantly, where did this man get his authority? And he would not answer that in the terms they would accept. And, the, and he and his followers, they had nothing going for them spiritually. Mm -hmm. So I think all I could do there uh, is just challenge you to look at the language and see if you can get out of it an interpretation which suggests, see, what lies back of that particular line of interpretation is that the Beatitudes are stating conditions of blessedness. And I'm not, Frank, I'm not saying that this is something that you seek or something that you want. I'm saying that it's, um, you know, you it's just, a state that God brings us into uh, in order to receive that. And, okay. Well, I certainly uh, see that that might happen to some people. Uh, it's just I wouldn't want to lay that down as what the Beatitudes are teaching. I believe what they're teaching is that the stuff that is thought of as bad in the human order can be a condition of blessedness. And I suspect you agree with that. Um, so the problem is to get the general teaching out of it. Do you have any, anyone else? Yeah. Let's get some, some new people real quick. <laughs> in the uh, divine conspiracy, in the context of embracing the goodness of God and um, being enthralled with God, you make the statement that it's perfectly safe to be in the world. If, you, if you're alive in the kingdom of God, this What's is that? a perfect. If you're alive in the kingdom of God, this world is a perfectly safe place to be. Yeah, that's, can you expand on that some? Within the context of the world being fallen, etc. Yeah, nothing can happen to you in this world that will deprive you of the goodness of life in the kingdom of God. Nothing. That's why Paul says all things work together for good to those who love God and are called into his purposes. And that's why Jesus says don't worry about anything. You're taken care of. God has your back, if you wish. So that's within the context of eternity. Of the Trinity? Eternity. 
Well, uh, now, uh, look, you all can, you can certainly disagree with it. I don't think so. I think you are blessed now, no matter what is happening, if you're alive in the kingdom of God. Right. Well, then you are perfectly safe in God's hands no matter what happens. See, like the people on the boat that was about to sink, Jesus is asleep, they wake him up, he stops the storm, and he says to them, Why were you frightened? And, you know, that's one of those occasions where no doubt they just sort of looked at one another and shrugged and said, oh, why were we frightened? We were only going to die. <laughs> See, I don't think he was saying you wouldn't die. See, it wouldn't matter if you did die. So uh, if you mean by in the light of eternity what is going on now, I do agree with that. I don't think of it just in terms of the afterlife, though that's an important consideration in its own right. And also, you know, uh, I don't think we should go to people who are in the midst of tragedy and sort of try to jolly them up. Uh, that, I think, is a terrible mistake. We want that teaching to be something that comes to them in general from... Hopefully, they're in a church where they're being taught these things. And uh, then uh, I can tell you a lot of stories about the difference in how people react to tragedy if they have been taught that they are in the perfect care of God no matter what happens. And see, that was Jesus' approach to his people in, uh, around him was to teach them about life in the kingdom of God now. Now, this doesn't mean that everything that happens is good in itself. Because even Romans 8.28 does not say everything that happens is good. It says all things work together for good. It doesn't even say for the best. But all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called into his purposes. So you can't sign that check unless you are a person who loves God and is called into his purposes. And see, that's where we want to bring people in our cities. That's why we want people in Long Beach to understand that they have a choice and they can move there. And that should come from their awareness of people who are around them who are living there. Now, there's a place for preaching and all of that. But you cannot bypass the witness of Christian people who are living in the kingdom as disciples. So that's why Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. They won't even stop at you. But you're the occasion that, oh, God is great. See, that's... That's what Jesus is saying. Now, that context in Matthew 5 is one where he's talking to ordinary people who could never even think the thought that they're blessed. I think if you look at the Beatitudes, you want to have in mind the, the crowd that is out in front of them. 
This is a wretched group of people. Just go back and read Matthew 4. And he's saying to them, Blessed are you in the kingdom of God. And that's what the Beatitudes are about. So that's the, the Beatitudes, in my way of thinking, and forgive me if I disagree with you, um, the Beatitudes are actually proclamations of the gospel. They're proclamations of the good news. Uh, you go back to Matthew 4, he says, Repent for the kingdom of, of uh, uh, the heavens is at hand. And says, now let me show you. And so he does some healing and teaching and so on. And then he sits down to teach further. And he's saying, well, blessed are, guess who? You. Right? You. And they didn't think they were blessed. See, and that's why as he goes along there, he says, now don't think I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. Well, whatever would make them think that? The inversion that he had just announced among, of who is blessed. Because what they had been hearing from those who thought they were in charge of God was, blessed are the rich. And so on. So their proclamation, proclamation of the kingdom of God's availability to anyone who will simply trust Jesus and walk into it. Can we have time for one more? Come on up. Uh, I have uh, one, two questions off of discipleship. And right. um, when I first started walking with the Lord, I, you know, in discipleship, Jesus talks about you know, counting the cost, picking up your cross, hating your mother and father compared to me, giving up everything you have. And then I was challenged when you said many in the church have never been challenged or invited to be a disciple. Yes. And I was wondering, one, why do you, why do you think we don't hear more about what Jesus is calling us into and counting the cost and more of the say this prayer so that you can get to heaven? And also, how could you be someone um, that is passionate about being a disciple of Jesus and walking with other people in that without being, what's the word I'm looking for? A jerk. Um, <laughs> Because <laughs> I, te I tend to maybe have the, the club over the head instead of this is what Jesus is calling us into. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Mike, you've actually raised a whole lot of very interesting issues. Um, what shall I try to talk about here? Uh, you, you know, for, for two millennia, the church has been obsessed with forgiveness of sins because they're trying to control God. So if you can get control of forgiveness of sins where you dispense it to people, then you have great power over people. And that's very early in the church that starts. And for example, for more than a thousand years, it came in the form of salvation comes through participating in the sacraments. And we are the ones who are authorized to administer the sacraments. And if you have to come to terms with us. That's why in European history, there's such a long story about excommunication and how even kings and princes quailed before the pope or bishop because they believed that these people could actually make sure they went to hell or at least to purgatory for a long time. 
Now, when you come up to the Protestant Reformation, you get the sacrament side of it dropped, but then pretty soon correct doctrine takes over. In order to have your sins forgiven, you have to have the correct beliefs. And guess who has the correct beliefs? We do. There's other people over there. They don't have it. And so then you get into long, bloody wars between the groups, Catholic, Protestant, sometimes between Protestant groups and so on, over this issue of controlling forgiveness. And I'll tell you, that's something, you know, if if you don't understand this rightly, you could spend a lot of time worrying about that. And uh, so that's one reason how we've come to have a body of Christendom worldwide where there is no necessity of discipleship or obedience or grace in life. It's because the central message has been thought to be about forgiveness. And who controls that? So now, I'm not sure about some of the other things you mentioned. Maybe you could repeat some of them to me. Um, I was just wondering why you think that takes place because I, you know, when, when I know, I know myself, when I first accepted the Lord, I never heard, but this is what he's calling you into, counting the cost, picking up your cross, all this stuff. Why do you think we don't, we don't hear that as much? Um, well, because people don't think that's essential to salvation as they understand it. But that's what Jesus said. <laughs> that, that's, that's my I'm with thing. you, but I'm with you. <laughs> And now, as long as we are caught at that level, then ordinary life is not something that we will train people and we ourselves will integrate into our understanding of salvation. Because we'd be thinking about salvation as just getting into heaven when you die, and we won't understand that salvation means, biblically, it means deliverance. So deliverance from what? Well, deliverance from sin. Not guilt alone, that too, but sin. And then we don't get much teaching about why anyone would want to be delivered from sin. Right? So uh, that becomes a real difficulty. The theology back of it is what does the damage. And it's the theology of salvation, soteriology as we call it. That's, that's the issue. What is salvation? Now the older saints and hymns even, you, like rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Ooh, what's that? Cleanse from wrath and make me pure. Hmm? See that, and that has been the understanding of uh, a stream that comes through Christian history. Um, And it's incorporated in various ways in institutions and theologies. But there is the continuing sense, and this, this is something that has happened Uh, recently in much of the church is the idea that we need to find a way of deliverance from sin. 
But again, many people can't go there because they're thinking in terms of, well, if I'm not delivered from sin, will I go to heaven when I die? So it takes a great deal of untangling, and what I'm here today to uh, talk to you about is making our congregations or our groups, our ways of being together, uh, places for discipleship, for disciples to come. And then what do we do with them? Uh, if Suppose you, I will be talking this afternoon more about training people to do the things that Jesus said. He said lots. How do, you, how do you train someone to let their yes be a yes and their no be a no? You can. But you have to decide you're going to do that. And then it'll help if you can have a fellowship where that's assumed to be what we do. Thank you so much, Dallas. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that was a rich table. And uh, we're going to come back this afternoon and and eat some more.
heart. We need your spirit.